What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular story podcast. I am, as always, incredibly excited to be back. Um, Keep me honest here, Laurel. Is this our first 2023 episode? I think it is. I don't know. (laughs) I I think think so. Yeah, I think this is our first time doing an episode here in 2023. And I'm going to tell you, folks, this is one that Laurel and I have been talking about doing since the podcast first launched back in 2017? Yeah. 2017, when we started the podcast. It's been one we've been debating doing, we've been looking at, and we've never really felt like it was the right time. And then we realized in you know planning our next episode we just need to rip the Band-Aid off and talk about this particular movie because, one, I think it's kind of tailor-made for the Midnight Myth mission, which is to talk about the historical, the mythological, and the philosophical aspects of our contemporary storytelling. And then I, I think we were just like, it's time. It is time for us to delve into this. Near I say, this movie may have way more aspects than we could actually fully cover in one episode. So we're going to do Midnight Myth Depth, but I don't know if we're going to dig as deep as we really could in this particular movie, because in every single scene, I think there is something to do with history, mythology, or philosophy, and kind of how all three sort of blend together beautifully and this, of course, is a movie. It came out in 2023. It's now 20 years... I'm sorry. It came out in 2003. Yeah. It's now 20 years old, which was another reason we wanted to tackle it. We both had not seen it in several years, at least a decade for me. And we were really curious about how it holds up. Uh, certainly, the last time I saw it was before I started the Midnight Myth Project. And I look at film and TV very differently now, having done this for as long as I have. That is, having done The Midnight Myth for as long as I have. So we're going to be talking about a movie by a little-known filmmaker. You may have heard of him. I'm not sure. His name is called Tim Burton. And the movie that just turned 20 years old is his sort of southern fairy tale myth-making story of a dysfunctional family that is all about big fish. 
Excellent lead up to that. Big fish in small ponds. Absolutely. So get out your fishing pole. Go ahead, get around the, uh, the campfire. Start weaving your tall tales because Midnight Myth is going into the Tim Burton universe. We've done Tim Burton before. We did Beetlejuice, I think. Yeah, we've done Beetlejuice. We covered Nightmare Before Christmas years back, which he didn't direct, of course, but was responsible for the characters and was a producer on the project. I think that might... No, we've definitely covered at least one of his Batman movies, too. In our conversations, which we've had many about Batman, Burton's Batmans are in there. But I don't know, have we done just a Tim Burton Batman? I think... I think so. Yes, we have? we have. We've done too many. We'd have to check. So keep us honest, fans. Yeah, Let us we know. need an archive. Tim Burton is a pivotal filmmaker for me as a movie goer. His movies started really becoming popular right around the time I was starting to get really interested in movies. So movies like Batman were certainly had a huge impact on me. Edward Scissorhands had a huge impact on me as a young person. And then Beetlejuice. And then when this movie came out, I'd say we're at the sort of tipping point of the Burton career where he really started to change and do different types of stories. I would argue less successful, less engaging, and less meaningful and artful stories. And more in, I mean, he's done a lot of just Disney remakes has been the thing he's been focused on primarily. And if you like those, they're no harm to you, no disrespect to you. I don't really care for them, so I've stopped actually going to see them. So the last few Tim Burton movies, I've just said, you know, I don't think this is for me and haven't watched them. But up until that point, Tim Burton was a must-see director for me. Everything he did, I went out and saw. And at the point of Big Fish, the only movie he did that I was disappointed in was Planet of the Apes. Everything else, I have some, I have a ton of respect for, and they fall somewhere on the specter, uh, spectrum of really, really like to earth-shattering, changed my life, you know, and everything in between. And even some of his less popular ones in that run, like a, a lot of people say Mars Attacks isn't a great movie. Oh God, I love Mars Attacks. I adore that movie in and all of its like warts and weirdness. Ed Wood is another like deep cut. Absolutely love Ed Wood. Thought that was a phenomenal movie. And to me, the sort of the, the changing point for Burton as a storyteller was Big Fish. I think that was the last great Tim Burton movie, in my opinion. And obviously, you can have your own, too. I'm not trying to change anyone's mind. That was his last great movie. And having now done The Midnight Myth, I'm really, I really am truly excited to get under the hood and really look at this wonderful, wonderful movie, this phenomenal story, this heartwarming, tragic, funny, spooky tale that Tim Burton helped produce and direct and make. I didn't even realize until we started researching the podcast that it was based upon a book. So now I got to go out and read the book, obviously. I had no idea that it was based on a book written in 1998. And I'm just excited for this. I love this movie and I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, same here. Just another thing to add to that kind of intro and talking about Tim Burton's legacy and coming to this film is that originally this was attached to Steven Spielberg. That's who was going to make this movie originally and he considered Jack Nicholson for the role of Edward Bloom, which I would I assume he was considering him for the older Edward Bloom. And 
after he decided not to take on the project, that's when it came to Tim Burton, who was the one who brought in Ewan McGregor and Albert Finney. And I think the strengths of this movie, you absolutely have to start with the amazing, like extraordinary screenplay, but without those two actors who I think play the two sides of this character with such charm and such a such a contrast between a kind of wild-eyed, childish innocence and a darker, more shadowy version of that. It's just a beautiful duo and then filled out by the supporting cast who I think are also delivering wonderful, subtle, uh, light-handed performances. You just can't imagine this movie in anybody else's hands. And that's where Tim Burton excels in this as well because we love him for his over-the-top style, right? We love him for his surrealism, for his kind of gothic approach. We love his art direction style, and he reigns a lot of that in for this while still infusing it with so much of this kind of spooky, dark fairy tale, but then is able to contrast that with a hyper-realistic, quiet, intimate family drama, and he handles both of those sides with equal, uh, I think, success. So it is really cool to see that he's capable of this. And I I, th I think I I would love to see more of that from him. I know we're well past that point in his career, but that's something that I would have liked to see more uh, in him as he grew as a director. I couldn't agree with more. We're, we're already jumping into analysis yeah. a little bit here. So we put the cart before the horse. Um, let us, before we get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Sure. So we would love to hear from you. We are on social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also find us on the web at MidnightMyth.com. Drop us a line on the contact form there. We'd love to hear from you. If you're subscribed to our feed, then you know that we recently came out with another installment of The Wheel of Ka which is Derek and Steve's Stephen King podcast, where they read through every book in the Dark Tower, and now they're reading through every Stephen King book. And they just did an episode on The Shining, which was awesome. I highly recommend it. And then go back and listen to the Midnight Myth episode on The Shining from a few years back, our Halloween special, and kind of play those off of each other. That was a lot of fun. And then the other thing you should check out is my podcast, Sleep and Sorcery, which is a podcast of original bedtime stories inspired by folklore and fantasy. So I write and record those for you to help you fall asleep at night. And that's available on all podcast players, on Insight Timer, the meditation app, and on YouTube. So definitely check that out if you have the time. And just a Wheel of Ka update. Steve and I are currently reading 112263 by Stephen King. We have read the first three parts of that and we have decided to pause and do an episode on the first three parts. So there will be a Wheel of Ka coming soon. We don't have a record date set, but it's probably going to be in the next two weeks and published shortly thereafter. So refresh the feeds. Also, if you are a fellow traveler on the path of the beam, we are going to keep posting Wheel of Ka in the Midnight Myth feed, but we feel like it is time it had its own so we're going to be creating a its own feed. So once that's up, go ahead and subscribe there or listen at The Midnight Myth, whichever, whichever your preference. Totally cool. Absolutely. I am so excited that you guys are reading 
my favorite Stephen King book, which is 1122-63, and cannot wait to hear what you guys have to say about it. So guys, read along with Derek and Steve, and then keep your eyes on this feed and the forthcoming Wheel of Coffee to hear more. Shall we move on to the briefest of brief recaps? We shall. Take it away, Derek. This is a very hard movie to recap because there's so many mini stories within the story, and it's told in a non-linear fashion. But essentially, this is the story of William Bloom, son of Edward Bloom, who is disappointed that his father has only told his life story through a series of tall tales, tales that Mr. Edward Bloom loves to recite as often and to as many people as he can, including at William Bloom's wedding, which culminates with William and his father not talking and becoming completely estranged. At the learning that Edward Bloom Sr. has terminal cancer, William comes back to be with him in his final days and is trying to reconcile the fictions and the facts so that he can learn something about his father. Meanwhile, William's wife is pregnant with a child and he's trying to figure out who his dad really was in the hopes that he could tell his son or future son one day. In this is spliced between seeing Edward Bloom's life through the lens of these tall tales as we go back into his past and um, see what it was like to live these actual stories Edward Bloom says is the story of his life. At the very end of it, there is a confrontation in which William just says, you know, Dad, I just want to know who I, you are. And Edward says, I've been who I myself my whole life. If you can't see that, that's your family, not mine, only to come to find out that he, Edward has a stroke due to the complications from cancer, and William goes to see him. And in his final moments, William seems to embrace the fictions of his father, and he tells the story of his father's last great adventure, where he transforms finally into the fish and returns to the water. And at the actual funeral of Edward Bloom, William sees many of the characters from Edward's stories, realizing that though these are indeed tall tales, there is so much truth built into them. And they seem to have found a piece. And the last scene of the movie is of William telling his son his father's stories as he's barbecuing and his son is in the swimming pool back to the water. There's a lot of great things in there. There's the town of Spectre. There's the witch whose glass eye can show you the future. There's bank robberies. There's just heartbreak and loss at seeing an old, once vibrant man being eaten alive by a cancer. And there's true, uh, uh, true emotion and pain and loss and love in this family. It, there's so much to this beautiful story and it's impossible to recap, so you do have to just see it. And I love its nonlinear style. And I guess I'm already segueing into the next um, segment, and I think you're going to know what I'm going to say about it. But I want to know, what do you think, Laurel? This movie came out 20 years ago. Does it hold up? It holds up so well. It really, really does. And a lot of that, again, you can chalk up to just a truly solid moving and powerful screenplay. That kind of thing is timeless. It never gets old. But then there's also such excellent practical effects in this. So nothing looks terribly dated. It feels very timeless. 
through the quality of the storytelling and through the visual style through which it's conveyed. I would love to tell briefly the story of me seeing Big Fish for the first time because I feel like it's apropos of the content. And that's that when I was, this came out when I was, I think, 13, and I saw everything. I saw every movie. I loved going to the movies. It was my favorite activity to do. And I had seen this trailer, and I loved it. I loved Tim Burton. I loved Ewan McGregor. I loved Billy Crudup. I was ready for whatever this was going to bring my way. So I bought tickets in advance to go to the movie theater with my best friend and go see this movie. And I like to get to the movie theater early, like I think a lot of people do, to see the trailers. But on this particular day, I was running late. We were running about 15 minutes behind the showtime to get to the theater. And I was so anxious and worried that we were gonna miss the start of the movie. So when we finally get there, we run into this theater and it was one of those little art house cinemas where you have maybe two or three screens going and we run in and we see Big Fish is on theater auditorium one and we just run right into auditorium one and we sit down and the movie's already started and we're like, oh no, it started. Okay, let's see if we can get caught up. And the scene that was playing was the scene with young Helena Bonham Carter telling the story of Edward Bloom refurbishing her house and saving the town of Spectre, and then her growing older and becoming a witch and letting her house get dilapidated again, and then saying, the story ended where it began. And about 15 minutes later, the movie was over. So I watched the end of the movie, and when the credits came up, my friend and I looked at each other and we were like, oh my God, we walked into the wrong theater. So we ran out and saw that it was showing on both screens that day. And we're like, oh no. And we ran across the theater into the other one where the movie was about 30 or 40 minutes in already. And we watched it from that point on through the ending. And we were like, that makes a little more sense now, but it still doesn't make a ton of sense. And it wasn't until it came out on home video and DVD that I was able to actually put the whole thing together. But it was such a funny, you know, that would never have happened to me in any other circumstance. I just happened to be late that day. And of course, it's the nonlinear movie where the first thing I saw was a scene where a woman says the story ended where it began. And that will always be kind of burned into my memory, this really unique way of taking in the film, which is about cycles and is about repetition and has no bearing on linear storytelling whatsoever. Um, and I was kind of just open to receive it that way. And I always think about it when I watch the movie. So I just wanted to share that. Other than that, you know, I've told you, I think this movie holds up. This is one of my favorite movies ever from the screenplay to the extraordinary cast to the uh, wonderful direction by Tim Burton. I just think this movie touches so many universal themes from myth and folklore and fairy tale, and it does so extraordinarily through the individual family unit. And that's the most moving part of this to me, and one of the reasons it holds up so well is because it's it's not necessarily trying to make a big statement about human nature. It's trying to tell you about this one man and his family. And yet through telling you about this one man and his family, 
you can read so much about human nature writ large. So I'll have more to say about that, but I, I love it, it still moves me. I have an Edward Bloom in my life who happens to also be named Edward, a larger than life patriarch in my family who tells stories that are probably mostly true, but there is definitely some embellishment to them. And now when I watch this movie, I think about my own family and I think about my own son. So that's how I feel. You know, I love that you shared that story and I couldn't help but thinking if Edward was telling this story, you would have had to have stopped because a bear blocked your way yeah. and everybody wanted you to fight the bear. And then you realized that the bear was actually just a little bit hungry. So you had a piece of salmon in your trunk and gave it the salmon. It got out of the way. And that's why you were late to the movie. You know, there would have been yeah. a little <laughs> extra detail in there. And you know, what's funny is when older Edward is sitting there with his son's wife and he's like, you know, he would tell the story, but all the facts, but none of the flavor. And he comments on how to make a story interesting and engaging involves having to do some embellishment. It involves exaggerating some details. And storytelling, in particular, verbal storytelling, when someone is telling someone else a story, what really matters is, is this going to hold their attention? And if it does hold their attention, then you can communicate what you want to communicate. But if nobody's listening, then the story is de facto pointless. Because if nobody hears you, then the, the story is irrelevant. So what Edward Bloom does is he dresses these stories up and makes it entertaining. I think Edward Bloom as a character, as we see through the eyes of his son, is a deeply flawed person, is not a perfect father or husband, has some issues that he is reconciling. But at his core, he is a storyteller, and that's why everybody loves him. And what his son needs to learn through this adventure and through his father's death and his foray back to his father's past is that he is his father being authentically him. As a storyteller, that's what he is. The details of what exactly does or does not happen isn't really what matters. The truth is, is Edward loved to tell stories. And that's what he loved to do. That's what he was best at. And that is how Will starts to see his dad as a storyteller. And that's how he reconciles that past. It's not really about the nuts and bolts, true details of where exactly he was and wasn't. Because the real facts of his life is he came from a small town. He went to war. He married his, the girl of his dreams and became a traveling salesman and missed a lot of time with his family, like traveling salesmen had to do in that era and that time. And instead of just telling that, he drums it up and makes it more important and bigger than what it truly was. And I think that's an interesting comment. I think one thing I'd like to pick apart is how does Edward tell stories? What type of storytelling is he doing? And what can we learn? I also think at the core of it, I mean, you made all of the comments I just want to agree with about the, the writing, the acting, the directing. In the Midnight Myth Perfect Movie Gauntlet, this would get the Technical Outstanding Award. Yes. Absolutely. I think every single storyteller from the people designing the sets to all of the actors, I think they are all technically outstanding at their craft. Danny Elfman's score, like, wow. I can't imagine it's easy 
to have two different actors playing the same character at different points. You know, a lot of times what you would see is that same actor, but just with makeup or prosthetics to make them look different. You know, the idea to actually have two different actors, I think, is a significant thing. Because if you think about it, in Edward Scissorhands, we see the movie starting as a story with old Winona Ryder in makeup, and then we go back to her youth. Yeah. So Tim Burton has deployed the old juxtaposed to the young using makeup, but in this one, there's an intention to actually have two different actors. It is as if when we get into that story time, it is a different Edward, right? We can read that the story Edward is not Edward. Yeah. That there are some sort of semblance of a, of a different self because the stories are not actually true, right? And so I think that's an interesting thing, and I think it can't be easy to do, to have two different actors play the same character at different points, but it's flawless. It's 100% believable. You absolutely don't feel like there's, because that's easy. If that's not done perfectly, that would be easy to feel disjointed. You know, I think of, I can think of examples of that where like there's been recasting where you're like, oh, that just doesn't work. That actor's making different choices and it just doesn't seem like it's the same character. But in this one, it's really believable. I think that's really phenomenal. And that being stated, I think there is some real interesting storytelling techniques because if anything that Big Fish is, it is a movie about storytelling. And it is a movie about a character deconstructing storytelling in Will and trying to learn the truth. And he starts as a skeptic. He starts as a postmodern journalist, objective. I'm trying to get to the objective, raw, real reality of it. And I need to know the true facts of my father's life to say that I knew my father at all. And his journey at the end he is no longer interested in that objective reality and comes to admit that there is a subjective quality to reality and embraces the stories. He'll never be the life of the party tall tale teller because Will is just not that person, right? He just isn't. But he comes to accept that a part of reality is subjective, that we do get a hand as individuals in shaping how we see the world and see ourselves and that we can subjectively color it and that we have the ability to do that. And that's okay. It's not a lie, right? He learns that in the beginning, it's a lie. My dad just lies. All he does is tell these, comp he calls them complex mythologies and all they are distractions from the real reality. I don't know my dad at all. And it turns out, well, his dad's subjective version of reality, he accepts them not as truths per se, but he accepts them as a subjective version of his father, and that's who his father was, and that's okay. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, You'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And it's an incredible act of generosity and forgiveness that he does at the end of the movie. 
in meeting his father where he is and giving him what he needs, he relinquishes some of that clutching to objective truth and becomes a storyteller, embraces the storytelling in order to give that as a final gift to his father. You know, I think it's significant too that Will is married to Josephine, a French woman who is on his side, has his back, and does see through some of the tall tales, but she still is, is coaxed by romance, right? She is, she is fed by the kind of romantic, idealistic idea of these stories, and she's able to be a really competent bridge for Will to accept that. I think it's through her kind of mediation that he comes to, to find that you can hold both things at once. And that's what he appears to be taking forward into his journey as a parent. You know, in that final moment of the movie when his son is telling the story of, of Edward to his buddies, and he's like, right, Dad? His dad is like, pretty much. So he's not saying, yes, that's exactly how it happens. He's saying pretty much, which is, for Will, a pretty big thing to embrace. It's like, there is more value in the symbolic truth. There's more value in the romance for my child right here. You know, our last full episode that we did was on Elf, and we talked about the Yes, Virginia letter. And it makes me think of that kind of journey, too, to embracing different kinds of truths, which are things that we at the Midnight Myth talk about a lot with mythology and with fairy tales. I want to just bring in a quick quote um, that I found on this kind of topic that I think you'll appreciate because you love to read Nietzsche quotes on the podcast. But this is from- Wait, 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 wait. You're doing a Nietzsche quote? I am. You are taking my role. I am happy, but wow, I don't have a Nietzsche quote. Sorry, everyone. I think you'll like it. It's from On Truth and Lies in a Non-Moral Sense. He says, quote, what then is truth? A mobile army of metaphors, metonyms, and anthropomorphisms. In short, a sum of human relations which have been enhanced, transposed, and embellished, poetically and rhetorically, and which, after long use, seem firm, canonical, and obligatory to a people. Truths are illusions about which one has forgotten that this is what they are. Metaphors which are worn out and without sensuous power, coins which have lost their pictures and now matter only as metal, no longer as coins, end quote. The final words of the movie are Will saying, a man tells his stories enough that he becomes his stories. They become part of him, right? In that way, he becomes immortal. Edward transforming into the big fish that he always was, symbolically, literally transforming into the big fish through Will's story of his death is him becoming a coin with the surface worn out. All he is is metal. You don't need the value. You don't need to know that he is a coin. You don't need to know what he's quote unquote worth. You just need to know who he is and what he is made of. And that's what Edward has been trying to tell Will all along. You don't need to know the true versions of things to know who I am. You don't need to know how I actually met your mother in all of its boring, mundane detail to know that I love her. And I think that is a really meaningful place for Will to arrive and accept. I love that. Can I ask you a question? I guess we are yeah. definitely in analysis. Oh, we agree sure. it holds up. Yeah. New segment. We're now we're analyzing the the movie. 
I want to know what your thoughts are on the symbolism of both water and fish, because it is by far the biggest symbolism that comes up even when you know Edward is you know dying of cancer. He has to go into the the bathtub and soak. And his wife's like, what's going on? He's like, I'm drying out. And he's constantly drinking water. At one point, Josephine says, is it the medicine that makes you so thirsty, drinking so much water? And he's just like, yeah, you know, you know, I am kind of a fish. You know, like I've always, is the story about the day his son was born is about the gigantic catfish that he caught using the wedding ring. Um, he's constantly in and engaged and around water. So what do you think the the role of that symbolically is in the movie? How do you read that? I have a lot of things to say about this. And, you know, the overarching thing I want to say is that this movie, through its very unique uh, fairy tale and mythological elements, is clearly extracting many extraordinarily popular myth themes, right? So the 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 city of Specter, uh, the the fish, like the witch, all of these things that echo through many different cultures and folkloric and mythological traditions. Uh, and the fish is the fish is absolutely one of those, right? So this is this the uncatchable fish, right? It's Moby Dick. It's the old man in the sea. It's a, it's a hugely popular idea of uh, something being unattainable, and yet your desire for it growing to a point that it overtakes you. That's really popular. Yeah, it's an interesting. I just want to jump in here because Moby Dick is a very much a story about obsession yeah. and man dominating nature and being unable to, right? I feel like Edward's story with the catfish, as he catches the fish, as he dominates as a man, as his ingenuity and prowess and cleverness has allowed him to work his will over nature, what does he learn? He learns that the fish is pregnant and says, I have to let this fish go. I want my son to be able to catch fish of his own. And I think there's a air of, you know, generosity, while, while that motif is certainly in play, and man understanding his role, man as in humans, I should say, humanity, understanding their role and trying to work their will on nature is at the heart of a lot of Western myths and some Near Eastern myths as well. Um, so it's at the heart of a ton of those. I can work my will. It's the core of Gil Gilgamesh to Odysseus, um, then everything in between, right? And so I think with Edward Bloom, I think that the way at least I, I take that one particular story is more about harmonizing with nature and respecting the cycle and saying some fish are going to grow to the size of their pond and some, some fish are going to outgrow it. This catfish is going to outgrow it but he wants to preserve it so that his son can catch fish of his own. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that you just brought in was the the feminine aspect, right? Because fish have a predominantly feminine role within this story, right? The fish who transforms into the beautiful woman and appears before him in Spectre, and then later when his car is caught in that deluge, that woman is a fish, and that then pulls in all of these kind of ancient multicultural myth themes of sirens and Rusalka, 
and the Nixie, these shape-shifting fish characters. There was one myth that I wanted to talk about briefly with regard to big fish um, because I think it's, I think it is uh, relevant, but I also, we haven't talked about it before. And so I just wanted to bring it in quickly from Irish mythology. And that's the story of Finn McCool and the salmon of knowledge. And this story, Finn McCool is a mythological Irish hero who is this larger than life guy. He is amazing. He's benevolent. He's a giant. And he becomes a leader of a band of warriors. And the stories about him all feel very much like a tall tale. He reminds me a lot of Edward Bloom in that way. So he's said to be a giant, and he's credited with building the giant's causeway, which is a natural rock formation. There are these columns that are located off the coast of Northern Ireland. And the story is that he didn't want to get his shoes wet when he was walking from Northern Ireland to Scotland. So he built this causeway there and numerous other islands and geographical features are attributed to him. Now, in one of the more famous tales of his upbringing, a young Finn was in the service of a poet whose name was also Finn, and that poet attempts to catch an uncatchable fish who is known as the salmon of knowledge. It takes him seven years, but the poet finally catches the salmon and instructs his servant, Finn McCool, to cook it for him, but not to eat it because the trick is only the first person to taste the salmon would be given its gift of extraordinary knowledge. So Finn cooks it, but as he's turning it over to see if it's done, he touches it with his thumb and it burns him. So he instinctively puts his thumb in his mouth and he tastes the salmon. So he accidentally gains all of the knowledge of the world. And from then on, he can just stick his thumb in his mouth and summon any knowledge that he needs from anywhere. This, again, super popular myth theme. It is the story of Gwion Bach and Caridwin in Welsh mythology. And it's very similar to the mead of poetry in Norse mythology. But I love the idea that this larger-than-life character gains his knowledge and his power through this story of catching an uncatchable fish and having ambitions beyond his station, right? He's a servant and then whoops, he's got this extraordinary knowledge and becomes a giant. Um, another fun coincidence from that that I want to bring in uh, is that in Belfast, there's a sculpture known as the Big Fish or the Salmon of Knowledge created in 1999 by the artist John Kindness and it's meant to symbolize the salmon of knowledge from Irish mythology. And it also has, you should look up this, uh, this sculpture. It has all these mosaic tiles on it that preserve news stories and lines of poetry from the history of Belfast. And it's also a time capsule that contains some things from the history of this town. And so in a way, this sculpture that's called Big Fish is the repository of the stories of a small people, of the people of a village where they keep their knowledge. And then Bloom also, you know, it's not specifically an Irish name. It's usually a Jewish name or an English name, but one of the most famous characters in Irish literature is a character named Leopold Bloom. So I just felt like all of those things swirling around had to mean a little bit of something. But that's also not the point, right? I'm not saying that Edward Bloom is Finn McCool. I'm not saying that Edward Bloom is encountering a Rusalka or a Siren. I think the point is that 
through extracting these popular mythemes and these folk motifs, Big Fish and the character of Edward Bloom make something very unique and all their own. The fish is a woman, the fish is Edward, the fish is his ambition, the fish is everything and everything is the fish. Yeah, interesting, I love that. Thanks for bringing in some mythology I did not know. And I'm not up on my Irish myth. I thought that's really cool. And I I think it is also fair to say that storytelling, in particular, engaging in with myth and folklore, um, using those terms very broadly, can reverberate where aspects of a character, aspects of a story can find their way into a new story, oftentimes unconsciously, sometimes pseudo-consciously, and then other times consciously. I don't know if the writer of the book knows their Irish mythology or not. Um, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Maybe they heard something in passing here and there and picked up pieces of it. It's also true that in every culture where people are close to bodies of water, they develop folklore and myth yeah. about the bodies of water. This is something that is true even to today. You go to any small fishing or land community, they're going to swap their own stories. It could be of a ghost ship. It could be of a fishing trip where someone finally caught the uncatchable fish. It could be of a shark attack, or it could be of sirens and magical creatures. And selkies, and, yeah. And selkies, and et cetera. So I think it's a very common theme where people and cultures around water develop stories about the water and have a a relationship through these stories to these bodies of water. You look at Asian Pacific mythology, and it's all about the relationship to water. I think Edward Bloom is a character who's been around water most of his life, so his stories also involve water. I also think Joseph, Joseph Campbell talks about water as a, symbol, as, as a symbol of the ego and submerging as a symbolism of delving deep underneath the ego. Yeah. And will cause his father a iceberg, which is the metaphor that um, Freud uses for the human psyche, and that the ego is the 10%, it is the stuff above the surface. So I think there's an engagement of psychoanalysis in here that we can apply based upon, I think, coming from Will saying, Dad, you're like an iceberg. All I see is the surface, but I don't see anything beneath. And in truth, Edward Bloom has built these stories in part to protect his ego. You know, the one of the clues that we get to this is when the doctor at the very end of the movie goes to Will and says, do you want to know the real story of your born? Dad was away selling things on business. That's it. You know, he was sad. He missed it. You came early. And it was a perfect delivery. It was perfect, you know, you know, as it goes. And that's the real story. And so Edward Bloom has developed this elaborate story about this fish to help protect his ego from the fact that he was sad he wasn't there. He'd rather tell this story, you know, and, and create a tall tale around it than actually admit the, the raw reality. And when you're dealing with a old man dying from cancer, that's okay. I think that's one of the, the, the takeaways is that if you elaborate and create a story to protect your ego, 
you're engaging in a defense mechanism. And yes, that has caused trauma in his family, and it has caused consternation between father and son. But it's also, you get to a point in Will's journey when you have to accept people for their flaws and not demand them to overcome them. And I think Will needs to understand that his dad is a flawed person and part of his greatness and part of his flaws is him as a storyteller. And I think you have to be able to see that in a person. And it's a hard thing for children to learn about their parents, that they're flawed, that they're not perfect, that they do things that are going to hurt you even though that's not their intention, that they want what's best for you. They may not always know it. And so much of how we create myths come from, according at least to Freud and Jung and Campbell and these great psychoanalytical minds, come from deconstructing the parent as a god and transitioning them out of godhood and into humanhood and then seeing them like they are because to the child, the parent looms like a god and then someday you learn they're not. And that's a hard lesson for children as they grow into adulthood to learn. And my dad has this great thing he said to me, you know, one day you just got to learn and accept. I'm not a perfect father and you're not a perfect son, but what the hell, we love each other. My dad said that to me once while we were hanging out and it was we were just reflecting on times we butted heads and you know fights that we've had, mistakes that we have made, things that we had done that had hurt each other and just be like, you know, at the end of the day, we love each other. That's all that matters. We're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. We made mistakes. I've been a bad son. I've been a great son. My dad's been a bad dad. He's been a great dad. Both of these things are true. And I think that is sort of where I think Will's journey is at is to accept the that the father will never allow the demythologized version of him to come through. He may not be psychologically capable of it. It's not okay, right? It's not okay that Edward Bloom steals the spotlight at his son's wedding. Not okay. That's not a good thing to do. Will's right to be mad. But to move halfway across the world and never talk to him, Will, that's your choice. Your father is imperfect, and that's okay too. And I think that's what Will comes to see and becomes a wholer, more complete self. This story is not, as much as we're seeing the mythologized version of Edward Bloom's life, this story's not about Edward at all. It's about Will and Will having to come to learn to see through and accept his father's mistakes and learn the reality. His father actually lived a great life, just not as great as his stories, but he lived a great life because he cared about other people. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead, jump in. Oh, I was just going to say, to add to that, you talk about Edward protecting his ego, protecting those regrets that he may have about things in his son and his wife's life that he missed. And then you talk about this deconstruction of the godhood of the parent, of the father. And I think the other aspect of that is that Edward is telling these stories in part because he was that ambitious big fish in Ashton and he wanted great things for himself and everyone foresaw great things for himself. And he was a traveling salesman. And he was not a great 
man who ended up making millions of dollars or influencing like the, the, the zeitgeist. However, his greatness came from the fact that he touched lives. He touched many, many lives and people found their relationships with him meaningful. Meaningful enough that after all these years, hundreds of people arrive at his funeral remembering what it was like to be in his presence. So I think there's part of this where he's like, the mythology of me is important to preserve because the reality of my life didn't go necessarily the way that I planned. And I would like the authentic version of me for people to take home to be the big fish, to be the big fish in the small pond who broke out and realized all of his ambitions. Yeah, and if we're talking about mythological antecedents to cycle back to your Irish myth, yeah. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about how this movie interacts with and plays with and is echoed from Homer's The Odyssey. Yeah. I really see a lot of that. I think it's worth noting that this movie came out shortly after Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Another movie heavily based on The Odyssey. In fact, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? says it is The Odyssey and based in the American South and based upon this. So what are some of the, the similarities we see between The Odyssey and Edward Bloom's life? One, Odysseus's main character trait is his cleverness. Yeah is his ability to solve problems through thinking. Edward Bloom also is very similar. He doesn't, you know, we see him in the war. We do see him fighting a little bit, but for the most part, he uses his wits. He uses his ability to tell stories. He uses his ability to be charismatic and kind to strangers to get out of situations. Um, very much like Odysseus. There is a giant in this there's a Cyclops, which is a type of a giant, a one-eyed giant in the Odyssey. There's a witch character. There are witches in that, uh, in the Odyssey. There is the Island of the Locust Eaters, where time seems to stand still, and they try to draw you in to stay forever, which is very similar to Spectre. Um, similar to the, uh, the story of the Odyssey, he, he meets a great poet, and what is the Odyssey, if not a great poem? And you mentioned the sirens. The sirens are part of the Odyssey. They lure the sea people, the sailors, to their death. There is this sort of fish character who acts like a woman sort of calling to Edward. Water is a major theme in the Odyssey. It is about him sailing home. Water is a big theme, and fish creatures are a big theme here in Big Fish. And lastly... The Odyssey is a story of Odysseus trying to make his way home to his wife that he loves. At every one of these stories, after he meets his wife, is about him trying to get back to his wife. He is very much, Odysseus is very much a lover, as is Edward Bloom, very much a lover. There might be times where Odysseus is tempted by other women. There is a witch who tries to tempt him. Um, Circe, I believe Cersei. it is. There's yeah. Circe, and then there's also Calypso, and they're both kind of these tempting characters for and, him. And here he is in Spectre, which is another word for a ghost, a place where witches would be. And here he is with a beautiful young woman who's trying to get him to stay there, who wants him to be with him, and he ends up resisting the temptation to go back to his wife. 
So I think there's a lot of the Odyssey, I think quite intentionally, I would I would assume, within this movie, which is very similar to Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And I'm just wondering, why do you think the early 2000s, you have these two movies adapting, inspired by this ancient Greek uh, poem, both taking place in the American South? I mean, it's a great question. I would also quickly add, he's not just trying to get back to his wife, who frequently is ready to give up hope that he's even still alive, but also his son, who barely knows him because he left, you know, Odysseus is trying to get back to Penelope and Telemachus. And Telemachus was a young child when he left and is basically grown when he returns. And so there is a mirror there. And I also forgot to mention this when I was talking about Irish mythology, but Leopold Bloom, the character that I mentioned from Irish literature, who is one of the most famous characters, is from James Joyce's Ulysses, which is an adaptation of the Odyssey. So I feel like it's there, some of that has to be a little bit intentional. Maybe it's not. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. But yeah, I think this idea that two movies came out within a three-year span of each other that both used the Southern Gothic as a medium to express this great sweeping epic poem is really interesting. It really gets my gears turning. I don't know if I can answer it except to say that, you know, if you're going to tell a story about a great man, about someone who traverses different wor different parts of the world, you're always going to have a little bit of the Odyssey in it because that is such a universal, uh, a universally known story. It's really hard to avoid the markers of the Odyssey when you tell any story that takes a character from point A to point B and back home again. So that's kind of the only answer that I can offer here. Um, but it's still, you know, a story that has a hold on our collective consciousness, right? The, the novel Circe by Madeline Miller that came out a few years ago is extremely popular because it shows another side of that same story that captivates us still to this day because of those characters and because of the kind of magical things that happen to the characters on that journey. You know, I think if you look at Homer's two great works, the Iliad and the Odyssey, in the ancient world, the Iliad was the bee's knees. Supreme. That was the most important one, not diminishing the Odyssey, but every single person knew the Iliad. Um, so, but when you read it as a modern reader, the Iliad is kind of boring these days. It's not as um, gripping as the Odyssey. Reading the Odyssey is, to me, much more engaging. Reading the Iliad's kind of work. I can read the Odyssey and have fun. And so I think if you're, if you're a storyteller and you're interested in telling stories based upon Greek mythology and you're familiar with Homer, you're going to probably gravitate more towards the Odyssey because that's more like what a modern movie would look like. It has a beginning, middle, and end. It has these great, grand adventures. It has monsters and witches and, you know, magical sirens and all of these things, whereas the Iliad is really about the politics of the war and the discussion and setting up the ancient Greek military masculine ethos about this is how you become a great man in ancient Greece. Well, that does, that's not really relevant anymore. But being blown off course and wanting to make your way home that certainly is still relevant. So I think it's partly that. I also think that Americans 
as a culture are very starved of true myths. And I think there is an attempt, and I have no idea if this is right. I'm just going to go out on a limb. This is coming to me in the moment. This could be total hogwash. I've got no data to back it up. It's just my gut instinct. So if this turns out to be stupid, I apologize in advance. But Americans are a society built on enlightenment rational principles, and we are very starved for myths. We're very starved for origin myths. The early 2000s is a period where there's great uncertainty in America, in particular post 9-11. We're trying to reconcile what does it mean to be an America now? What does it mean to be an America that's vulnerable? America that can be attacked, that can be hurt. We're not this invincible giant. And I think you have two different great American storytellers in Tim Burton and the Coen brothers going back to the roots and trying to create a modern American myth. And sadly, that doesn't work in the Northeast Coast. That doesn't really work because it doesn't work in the industrial. It doesn't work in the big city. It doesn't work... You know, there's one great storyteller that likes to be in the Northeast Coast. It's Stephen, Stephen King, King yeah. but he's postmodern as all heck. He's deconstructing all of these tropes that he's playing with. Whereas real, whereas uh, Coen Brothers, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, and Big Fish, I almost said Real Big Fish. I almost <laughs> did. I've been calling it Real Big Fish, and Laurel's been making fun of me because that's a ska band from the 90s and 2000s, not the movie. And I, now I paid attention to it because I'm an idiot. But anyway, let me. I digress. I think there's a, a desire to tell an American myth in a sincere way in both of these. And the South is the fertile ground for which I think it makes the most sense. The South tends to be more superstitious. It tends to be a place that is known to have uh, more open spaces. So less urbanization, less quote unquote civilization, not saying the South is uncivilized. And so... It, it, because of that, it's a place where a lot of folklore still happens, still exists. And so I think it's a great place to ground a sincere contemporary American myth. And I think Americans are starved for this type of content. I think Americans really do want myths about America. I, and I think we gravitate that not knowing our place in the world and what it means to be an American is a fertile territory to allow a myth to come in and say, this is what it means to be an American. And in particular, an American man, you're successful. You fight against all odds. You are not reliant on anyone but your wits and your determination and your work ethic. You're able to overcome those odds. You can bring civilization to the uncivilized areas. You are a family man. You care about your wife and your kids. Those are more important to you than anything else. You're okay stepping outside the bounds of conventional law and order. Law and order itself is like, you know, we got a little bit of a rebel streak. Another thing that is runs very big in the South, right? That the idea is like, yeah, you know what? I can do it myself as a man. I don't need these laws. Edward Bloom plays fast and loose with laws. So does the main character, I forget his name, in O Brother, Where Art Thou? So does Odysseus. This idea that, you know, if the law is constraining you from your greatness, step outside it. 
don't become a murderer and a killer, but it's okay to step outside it as long as when you come home, you're still a family man to your core. And I think that is part of the reason I suspect no data that I think why we have these movies at the time that we have them. I think that's really well said. I'll just kind of add to the question of why the South in saying, you know, there's a reason the Southern Gothic is its own flourishing literary and cinematic genre, right? There is at once the kind of romantic actual imagery of the American South, you know, Spanish moss and willow trees and swamps. That's really ripe for kind of spooky storytelling. But then for better or for worse, let's be honest, for worse, we have a lot of romance about the the South and the Civil War. We have Gone with the Wind. We have the kind of Confederate romanticism that still lingers in that area today. And we have a deeply, deeply spiritual population too. Uh, does not, I would say about the Confederate romanticism, linger is probably too soft a word. Yes, no, yeah, you're right about that. Absolutely. But we have the confluence of a deeply spiritual population, a heavy like Baptist streak, the Bible belt. And then in places like Louisiana, New Orleans, we have large immigrant populations that bring traditions like voodoo and uh, Yoruba folklore into this. So there is just so much ripeness for this kind of storytelling. And I also just want to talk about what I see as the main difference between Oh Brother, Where Art Thou and Big Fish on the Odyssey level and in the ways that they interact with their landscape in the South. And that's that Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, straight adaptation of the Odyssey which is historically grounded in these social and political aspects of the time in which it's presenting the uh, American South. It's not realistic necessarily, but it is. it does have some objectivity and some historical context that it is using to ground that narrative. And at the end of the story, you have your main characters talking about a big sea change in the South and talking about big social movements to come. That is not present in Big Fish. And I don't think that is a problem. I think Big Fish uses the backdrop of the South for the elements that it is able to amplify in the characters and not necessarily, it's not necessarily interested in engaging with the historical context. It's not that kind of story. It is a myth. It is not a legend, right? It is of this time and place, but it does not need to be of that time and place to tell this story. And it is talking about an individual, a family unit, a very small folk group that it is actually working with in order to transmit universal themes. It's not going to tell you a big social movement. It's not going to tell you big swaths and sea changes. It's going to tell you that what's most important in this story is the way one man reconciles with his father and the way that man treated his family and the way he influenced the relatively small group of people that he came into contact with in his life. I think that is a really, really great point. I totally agree with that. I don't consider that a flaw of Big Fish at all. I don't either. And, and in fact, I think... The, the the very nature of the story and when we see the real funeral of Edward Bloom and we see what a diverse group of people that come to honor him, I think implicitly says that Edward Bloom was a person that just judged people on their merits, not on their cultural differences, the color of their skin, etc. So I think there is a element of 
of acknowledging that Edward Bloom was a person very comfortable with diversity by virtue of looking at his friends, but that's not the point it's making, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It's not saying, it's not making a point about race and politics in the South during the, you know... Or gender. Yeah, or gender in yeah. the middle of the 20th century in America, whereas I think, oh, brother, where art thou is, and I don't think that's a flaw because not every movie should or needs to be about that. This is about, like I think you said it really well, a tight, small folklore community among this family. Um, very, very good point there. Um, you know, we've been going on for a while. There's an entire segment I want to do about Big Fish, but I'm wondering in the moment here as we are talking about this, if we should make this a two-parter. I think maybe we should save that conversation for a midnight myth meditation because I think it is a perfect, uh, it's a perfect context for that conversation. You know what? That's a great call out. Yeah. We're doing some live editing. You're not listening to us live. I don't know why I said that, but we're, we're game planning out. So there was another segment that I wanted to do about this that I think we'll, we'll record separately about big fish, um, which I think would make great fodder for a midnight myth meditation. Um, so with that being stated then at the tail end here, do you have any final thoughts? This has been really fun. I love Big Fish. I love that we can go into watching the movie and be like, hmm, that reminds me of the Odyssey. That reminds me of Finn McCool. That reminds me of Pecos Bill. And that reminds me of my grandfather. There is something about the tension between the personal story and the universal story in Big Fish that is one of my favorite things about great movies and great storytelling. Um, it's one of the reasons I got into this podcast in the first place is because I think there are things that our stories can teach us that it, they can teach everyone, but you don't love them because they're universal. You love them because they mean something to you as an individual. They pull you in and they whisper to you. And this movie, I think, whispers to me while it also probably whispers to millions of other people. And that is a really powerful thing to do. Um, big shout out to John August, the screenwriter, because I think his work is, is the, the gold star of this movie. Excellent. Loved this conversation. One of the reasons we put off, at least in recent Midnight Myth history, we put this off is... We recently had a son. I became a dad. And I just wasn't sure I could watch this movie with knowing that it is about how temporary you are, how impermanent your stay is on this blue rock floating through space, and that how hard it is to be a parent. And knowing that when I first saw the movie, I saw it like a lot of young men watching the movie through the eyes of Will. Now, as a father, I really look at Edward's side more. And it was eye-opening to me how becoming a parent changes the way you look at art and media and entertainment, such as movies like Big Fish. And it was really hard to watch, even though this movie, I think, has its own version of a happy ending, it's a very raw and real ending because eventually we all die. And when that occurs, um, 
you know, it's always implicitly sad, right? No one likes it. And I really was affected watching it, thinking about my life, my journey as a dad, and knowing that I'm going to have an Edward to Will moment where I'm going to see things like Edward, not like Will. We're like, I'm your dad. This is how it is. What, what are you complaining about? And it makes me think of just what a crazy weird thing it is that we all are here and that we can have, we can make other humans. And it just still blows me away. The fact that here I am now doing the midnight myth as a dad and having done it not as a dad and how that has just changed me at a fundamental level. The first, you know, half a dozen times I saw big fish, I didn't have tears. I didn't cry. I thought it was sad and moved. I was moved. It's not like I was unfeeling, but I didn't have tears. Watching it this time, watching it now, I bawled like a baby just at the, the joy and sadness of the ending. And for that, I just truly thank the people that made this movie because I like Edward Bloom, who goes to Spectre a second time and remarks how different things can look when you see it from a different perspective at a different point in your life. This movie was very different for me this time around and in such great ways. And to make a movie that you can have that kind of relationship with is a special thing, is a magical thing. It's the, it's the beauty of mythic storytelling is that you can come back to it at a different time in a different perspective and get something new and different out of it. And for that, I just am just overjoyed that this movie exists. And until next time, be kind.